Hello and a warm welcome to Translate Stars podcast, a podcast created by language professionals for language professionals. Hi everyone, I'm Roberta, Translate Stars social media manager. I hope you're doing very, very well today and I hope you're ready for today's live interview. Um, we will talk about interpreting and how to have overcome stage fright and memory lapses. And I'm here today with Matthew Perret, Perret, correct me if I'm wrong, conference interpreter, trainer, and performers. Hi, Matthew. How are you? Hi, I'm very well, thank you. Lovely to be here. <laughs> uh, great. So are you ready for this interview? Uh, okay. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> More or less. Perfect. So just before we start, a quick reminder to the audience, uh, please do not hesitate to use the chat to ask Matthew uh, your questions and I'll read them and share them with him. So um, let's dive in. Um, I've checked your background and um, I saw that you have an unusual career path since you were initially a performer slash writer and then you trained as an interpreter. So why did you decide to do so? And in your career as an interpreter, what skills did you transfer from your previous experience? Well, I was studying languages, mainly literature. So that was the sort of writing side, if you like. I was very clear that literature was my thing. So it was all about reading and writing. And it was foreign languages. I did French and Spanish with Catalan, and I was learning Italian as well. And then I did literary translation and performance, stand-up comedy, poetry, um, and uh, a play. Uh, which I toured and but then sort of slowly I realized I needed to earn a living and interpreting seemed very attractive because it seemed to have this performance element I wouldn't just be sort of sitting in a room with with books all day although I did love doing that too but it seemed that translation literary translation once the the sort of money of uh, you know winning a prize for something or whatever ran out it didn't seem really sustainable uh, I would have to do other kinds of translation as well. And I found that interpreting speakers talking about any topic was kind of fun and interesting, whereas translating texts on any topic didn't appeal quite so much. And I was lucky that they were offering in-house training at the European Commission. So I jumped at the chance and thought, if it doesn't work out, uh, I'll have had an interesting few months and, uh, and that's it. And um, so I sort of stumbled into it and it did work out and I ended up staying for several years. And um, uh, about the skills, what skills did you uh, transfer from one career to, to, to the other? Well, I wasn't that clear in my mind that that's what I was doing. I think now I would see things like that a lot more now that I'm a trainer myself. At the time, it probably gave me a little bit of confidence with public speaking. And I think also the literature in retrospect um so much of uh, theater and novels is about writing in a voice either a character or the perception the unreliable narrator etc and all of that fed into i think an, an understanding of how when you're listening to somebody present something you don't always take everything at 
face value. Uh, it's not so much what people say as, of course, how they say it. My trainers are saying to me very early on, but then also why they are saying it. Why are we here? Why are we talking? Why are we listening? What do we want to achieve? And that is at the heart of communication as artists sort of explore it. And when you stand on stage, you are also, in a way, projecting a story, um, even if you're being yourself to some extent you're empathizing with the audience and with their perception playing with their perception in comedy and all of that I think is is happening in interpreting too plus I think if you can laugh at miscommunication and uh, sort of step back a little bit from that human side psychologically you can get through it a lot better too, because I saw people doing the training alongside me who took everything so seriously, which is obviously a good thing. <laughs> and I think that was one of my challenges early on was to actually convince people that I was serious and professional because I was coming to it from this other angle. But I saw that at the other extreme, if you really, really took every word seriously, you could really suffer and really beat yourself up about uh, misunderstandings. And I like to kind of explore the, the the funny side of that which would often teach you lessons about it and make you more sensitive next time around so not everybody was open to this sort of playful approach at the time uh, but I've since found maybe having got a bit of the serious experience under my belt that it is a fun thing to use in training as well to open open up people's minds to different ways of thinking and expressing things. Mm -hmm. So you, you mentioned that you also work as a trainer for conference interpreters. So, and how does your writing slash performing background um, influence uh, your work in this uh, specific area? Well, I found when I was training interpreters in the UK uh, that people were often coming to postgraduate training often with strong languages, but not always with enough general knowledge or knowledge of how the EU worked to go on or the UN to go on to work at international organizations, or even perhaps how international business worked enough to go on to work on the private market for conference interpreting. So there's a lot of information to transfer as well as the skills, and you need kind of both together. So I, I saw this challenge as a trainer and because of my background, I would instinctively try to communicate both skills and information together, mainly through making people laugh, or at least somehow people would laugh at some point of the process, just because I find so many things absurd and, and kind of want to, to share that. Uh, Bill Hicks, the, the famous US comedian, said that the comic, by using the voice of reason, reminds us of our true reality. The audience is relieved to hear they're not alone in thinking the bullshit we see and hear all day makes no sense. Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to say bullshit. <laughs> I'm going to get all three things wrong. Like, I'm supposed to talk about stage fright and I've got uh, about being on all these different platforms and I'm supposed to talk about memory lapses and I'll forget what I'm talking about. I'm supposed to talk about diplomacy and I'm using very undiplomatic language. Um, but uh, the, the point there is that when you, when you can see and share the vision of how absurd something is, um, you, you get a much more sort of crystalline, a clearer view of what is going on beneath the surface. And so by sharing that with students, that relief that they felt 
on seeing that these sort of slightly impenetrable things that they were trying to wade through or articles in The Economist that were sort of words to them and very hard to connect to reality. This seemed to be a, a, a way in, a way of opening a, a door to shared experience, just like all, all theatre does. Um, so that sort of happened naturally. And then when we started making video materials and uh, whenever anyone gave me any degree of freedom as to how to design something, I'd say, well, why do we have to have somebody standing up in front of a classroom full of people and film that? Just because that's what we did before we filmed it. Why does the video have to consist of that? Are we just as boring as the boring class was before we had video? Um, so I would try to take the opportunity to use sketches or other formats to, to try to reproduce that effect I'd noticed in person. Uh, to try to do that on on film as well. Mm -hmm. um, so acting and interpreting share many similarities, and such as stage fright and memory lapses. And could you give the audience some tips or pieces of advice on how to overcome these these two challenges? Right. Well, I think a lot of this revolves around uh, what it is that we think we're trying to do in the first place, which is, <laughs> I know it sort of doesn't help. This is what a lot of advice to students sounds like. It's like, oh yeah, well, all very well for you to say and all very abstract, but I'll have a go, okay? See if I can convince <laughs> anybody listening. Um, so if we think what we're doing is about words and if we think we are under pressure and if we are concerned that our priority is finding the right words, then I think we're very likely to have both stage fright and memory lapses, because we will have a kind of paralysis at the fact that we cannot find the right words. Or just the very idea that we might not find them already stops us from finding them. So by trying to do the wrong thing, we end up not being able to do really anything. We cease to communicate at that, mo that moment. So the way I would try to reframe it is to to reframe what our objective is. So the first thing is, if the worst comes to the worst and we have a really terrible speaker, um, our aim or one way of defining what we do is to put the target language listener in the same position as the source language listener. So we can cling on to the source language listener's problems. If a speaker you know, spends half an hour failing to get to the point, that doesn't need to stress us out as an interpreter because the source language listener is getting stressed out and impatient at the speaker not getting to the point. It's got nothing to do with interpreting. Or if it's incredibly dense, an incredibly fast thinker, as well as a fast speaker, then source language listeners will not be able to keep up. And I know, again, this sounds like something abstract, but this has happened to me. I had a, a, a sequence of Argentinian academics who'd been told they had 40 minutes and it was changed to 15 minutes and they presented their incredibly abstract uh, doctoral research in 15 minutes instead of 40 and we were doing the interpretation into English and it was incredibly difficult. I had the worst sort of headache, uh, figurative and, and literal terms. And in the coffee break, I went in to talk to the British academics because I was worried that they would ask for their money back and just say, you know, what are the, <laughs> these interpreted jokers who, you know, they're kind of, they're saying one word every for every 10 words I hear in <laughs> Spanish. And um, several said, thanks very much. You know, we hadn't noticed that you were under pressure, which is 
okay, like good news for delivery, but not necessarily for intellectual rigor. But another one said, I speak fluent Spanish and I was listening to you out of preference because it was too hard to follow the original. And normally I would listen to Spanish at a conference. So they didn't choose the interpretation because it was a different language, the reason most people will choose it. They chose it because it was pre-digested and easier to follow, which shows that a listener really wants something pre-digested, which they can follow in order for communication to actually uh, succeed. So we can put everything in perspective uh, when we have a very challenging source speaker. That's the, that's the first thing. But that's kind of the extreme situation where what we're panicking about is something which is objectively very, very challenging from the source speaker. A lot of interpreters, I think, suffer from these kind of nerves and effects of nerves when there isn't an objective challenge, when a lot of it is in their own head. Um, so this is where I turn to, to reframing the, the task. So there are unknown unknowns, I guess, and, and a sort of misprioritization sometimes that we will place huge, or sometimes we will tend to panic about something that we, we don't know. So the moment we hear something we don't know, our interpreter instincts set off an alarm because we're supposed to know everything. And the problem with that is that it doesn't help us communicate. So if objectively there's an unknown element what we need to be doing is behaving like a detective and using all the known elements that surround it to deduce what it might mean. And in fact, it may not turn out to be as important as we think it is because we've put it at number one, we've put that element at number one priority because it's the one that's giving us a problem. But it's not about us and our problems. It's about the source speaker and their intention uh, of communicating to their audience. So that means if there's something intrinsically problematic about it, the source language audience has a problem too, in which case they're being a bad speaker and it's not the interpreter's problem, so we can relax. If there's something which is uh, part of a bigger story, which is illustrating something else or helping them to get somewhere else as part of the story, then as long as we stick with the story, we haven't failed in our task. It is not the number one priority as an element. It is part of a bigger story. And so often when I hear student interpreters and interpreters at the beginning of their career have one of these moments where they kind of freeze and are overconscious of the fact that they've failed with one particular element and that then destabilizes them and has a knock-on effect. So we have lots of collateral damage of that moment, which can be linked to memory lapse or that sudden self-consciousness which is a bit like stage fright so I think this covers all those sort of categories when people have those moments very often if you go back if we can go if it's a class and we can go back and listen to the source speech again somebody might well say something that sounds a bit odd and then say what I mean by that is and explain the term the new term that they've just given they've actually given a definition immediately afterwards and if they haven't done that they might say, I'll give you an example. And they say, you know, there weren't enough taxis after the uh, accident, so people were using private cars to transport the, the, the victims. That gives you an image immediately that tells a story that there was some other abstract phenomenon, a shortage of official emergency transportation options, whatever it might have been. The thing that we didn't understand 
we didn't understand. We then got a visual example, which we did understand, and the, vis the visual example leads us to the story. So very often the specific will lead us to the general. So I would say those two cases cover a huge proportion of the times that interpreters panic. One is just stick with it and wait for the definition or the explanation. And the other one is stick with it and wait for something which is more specific and tangible that gives you a clue as to where you're going. And then you stay on track. And maybe you never recover that element. Um, and maybe that's not a problem either. Because if you go back, as we can, with recordings now and, and analyze and really say how, how important, what level of priority would that element have had, the collateral damage nearly always outweighs that element. So the fact that that one element that made you panic, uh, it's the fact that it made you panic has caused far more damage to your interpretation than that element itself. So this is where I think the, the key is to change uh, the mindset and to go with what you know. It's not to say details aren't important. It's not to say, oh, disregard what the speaker is saying and so on. It's just we can't give supreme importance to the one thing that we happen to find most difficult that day. That is ultimately quite a narcissistic sort of thing to do because it's, <laughs> not, it's not the speaker's priority. Yeah, and on that, um, on prioritization and um, and stuff, do you think that there is some element of imposter syndrome when we talk about memory lapses or especially stage fright? Do you think that there is this kind of complex and do you ever feel it uh, in person? <laughs> Yes, yes, definitely. I think it's I think it's very common for for interpreters because um, you, it, it kind of goes both ways. That you're a sort of stand-in in a way for a speaker or a substitute for a speaker. So you may cope with some speakers and then find that a speaker who has all the fireworks and is doing amazing rhetorical things, uh, you may think, well, that's such an amazing public speaker. I could never aspire to be that person myself. So how can I aspire to be their interpreter? Or this is a world expert in this topic. That's why they've been invited. That's why they're here at this conference to share their highly specialized technical knowledge of this topic. If I had that knowledge, I would be the speaker in the room being paid 10 times as much as the uh, interpreter. So it, in a way, we, it's built into the system for us to think, I in some way cannot match this speaker. And that then cuts the other way too, uh, so that we're either paranoid or arrogant, or in, in my experience, often a, a mixture of just sort of oscillating freely <laughs> between the two positions. So this would be a common sort of emotional state of an interpreter, which is that when you then get a speaker who you feel isn't as good as you would be if you could be in that position, you've sort of been forced into doing this. Uh, to be fair to interpreters who do this. I understand why this happens, because if someone's saying you have to be as good as the best and you struggle to do that, and then you're given something less than the best, you've got all this adrenaline, you've got all these reactions ready, and you're then frustrated. And so you then are turning off the mic and turning to your colleague and saying, what a terrible speaker, or what they should have said is this, or what I would have done is that, or whatever. And I think it's equally sort of unhealthy, really, for the whole uh, process. But 
as to whether you're an, an imposter or not, I'd go back to the source language uh, audience definition. And I think you can have a core range of tricks that some of which may not always match all of what the speaker does. And that doesn't always matter either. So I think it's that putting that in perspective. So again, I'm not advocating a mission or you know, saying that it's okay for interpreters not to do what the speaker does. Of course, we aspire to be exactly on that level. But let's say you have a speaker who is very charismatic and rhetorical and has this sort of magical effect on on the source language audience and we feel like imposters because we're sitting in a booth where we even if we were charismatic we wouldn't be able to share that with the audience in the same way so first thing we use our voice more we're disembodied they can see the speaker they can't see us so that's why interpreters need to work on their intonation to use it intelligently to compensate for not not having that on stage magic when, when the speaker does have it. Uh, and so that can give us then a bit of confidence that we're not such an imposter because we're, we're, it's an, not a level playing field and we, we're using what we have at our disposal. Um, but then bear in mind that the audience can see the speaker. So they're still getting that. They're not deprived of that body language. So we don't need to feel that we're competing or trying to substitute for it we're doing the verbal part. And so we can also sort of not panic about the other part and say, well, somebody's watching, the target language audience is watching this, enjoying this, getting all of these great things that this speaker has, except they don't understand the language and I can help with that bit. So very often just by sort of reframing it as to what, what our ambition is. And if the worst comes to the worst, we have all this thing of, you know, the interpreter, uh, apologizes or the interpreter points out and and it is okay to step out of your role and we're normally in the third in, in the first person so when we say i we are the speaker so when we switch to the third person we're actually becoming our real selves and saying the interpreter says when we actually mean i say not the speaker says and that paradox liberates us and it can be overused Again, I was talking about arrogance earlier. So sometimes when interpreters think they know better than the speaker, they will say, you know, so this is 42% higher than last year, says the speaker, because they've got a chart in front of them that says something else or whatever. So it's kind of just to say, I didn't make that mistake. That was the speaker's mistake. Okay, fair, uh, uh, fair enough. But uh, it, it can be overused, as I say. But when it comes in handy is... If you bear in mind that your target audience is curious and open-minded, they're listening to somebody who's coming from a different background and they want access to it. That is why they have sought you out. That is why they've put their headphones on. That's why they're there. And they don't expect miracles. If they expected you to just turn this speaker into a native speaker of their language through some sort of alchemy, um, they wouldn't be curious people. They'd be reductionist, um, sort of limited, narrow-minded people who wanted all everything foreign to be turned into something domestic for their consumption. And in my experience, customers of interpretation are not in that category. Again, empathy. I think empathy is absolutely vital. Be thinking about what, what people want and put yourself in their shoes. So just, I'm sorry, I realize I'm blabbering on with this answer. I've just got one, one more thing to say in this, this answer that's just occurred to me is I love watching Korean dramas. 
and yeah, I, I don't understand any career. <laughs> so I watch with subtitles. And the most interesting part to me is when they say, oh, well, this particular bowl of you know, noodle soup, which you always have and has this particular significance. And there's something I miss. There's something I don't quite get because I haven't been to Korea. Um, and that's what I love about it. That's why I love watching that series instead of another one. You know, if they just said, now we're going to have some fish and chips, I think, <laughs> oh, well, great. You know, I could have just watched a British series. You know, I really think <laughs> a British about fish and chips. Okay, so I, are we back? Yes, I lost. We're I lost. A, I don't know if that was my bandwidth. Yeah, maybe maybe it's me, but we're back, so that that's good. Just a quick reminder to the audience: if you have any questions uh, for Matthew, please jump into the conversation. Just write in the chat, okay? And um. I'll go to the next question, which is, um, you mentioned some big challenges that interpreters face. Uh, what are some of the other most common challenges that interpreters face? And how, would you, how do you suggest to your students to overcome them? Hmm. It's interesting how you would define this. So what are the challenges that interpreters face? I think... Uh, there are different ways of looking at the question using this empathy that I was talking about. So according to whom? So if you say to the student or to the interpreter, what are the challenges you face? They may start talking about things that customers don't rate as particularly important. And that may actually be part of the problem and why there's a challenge and why there's imposter syndrome and why there is panic and all the things I was talking about earlier. Um, so asking people to define their own challenges can sometimes reveal in fact, what the challenge is, that they're seeing the, the nature of the task or the ambition of what they want to do in a way which is not helping them uh, to, to do it well. I'd say there, there are a few that, from my analysis of listening to other people interpreting or, you know, as an examiner and things like that when you're working with, with students or evaluating other interpreters, trying to get the customer's perspective mainly, and, and often I am a pure customer anyway. So, for instance, I do a lot of training with Chinese interpreters, and again, I don't speak Chinese. So for English retour, for non-native English, I can be an evaluator who is like a customer. I am dependent on the interpreter, and so I have certain reactions that are the customer's reactions rather than the colleague's reactions or the interpreter herself or himself saying, this is what I find a challenge. So the challenges that I would observe from the outside that are perhaps more relevant um, are underselling yourself. So you've actually got a good product. You know what you're talking about, but it doesn't sound like it. And this often comes back to intonation, public speaking, and uh, so on. So uh, a hesitation in the voice, which communicates the process of interpreting. And the other example <laughs> right it's not pleasant to listen to it makes you think the interpreter doesn't know what they're talking about it means you don't trust the information so you have a major major obstacle to communication but maybe the interpreter is doing fine in terms of content maybe they then say the next few words they say are actually a good uh, rendition you know if it were written down it would be a good translation uh so underselling because of the the, the 
communication uh, aspect. I think the unknown unknowns that I mentioned before, especially working into a B language, that uh, it can be harder to put yourself in the position of the listener because by definition, you're not a native speaker of, of your target language. So it can be harder to make that leap and to hear yourself the way they hear you. And for that, you need to get out there and talk to people and find out and ask them afterwards. And I think the supposed protection of the booth. Uh, so here I'm going to sound like a complete dinosaur. You've probably, you're probably wondering, you know, when, when somebody my age was going to sound like a dinosaur and start talking about the time before Nuremberg and so on. Well, here we, here we go. It's the <laughs> dinosaur moment. Uh, that executive, you're standing up in front of people in an actual room with actual nonverbal communication and immediate feedback from people's facial expressions and, and everything else. So the illusion of protection of the glass booth of simultaneous can prevent people developing this sensitivity and two-way communication with the people listening. And remote further worsens that again, the complete physical isolation of the interpreter or of all parties um, means that there are far fewer opportunities to do this. So we have to actively seek it out. And it, it is still possible. Uh, both simultaneous and remote are merely uh, delivery methods. They don't change the fundamental uh, interpreting task itself. It's just that we need to be aware that if we don't have certain of these human factors, like physical presence and ability to, to talk to each other, you need to establish it differently. You and I had a little chat. Well, we've had several chats online that setting this up. And then we had a little chat before we started now. And you're sort of nodding while I'm speaking and, and so on. So, you know, we've managed to achieve some sort of human communication despite being completely, so. <laughs> completely online, right? Yeah, I have said so <laughs> And you also said rather ominously that I should stay online after the end. So I'm expecting to kind of get feedback from the teacher on, on how the interview has gone. <laughs> but um, <It> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So this is, this is to me, is an example of how, you know, it, it can work. Um, but we don't always have this privilege with, our, with the people we're working with as interpreters. So if we have a problem of the unknown unknowns of how is my listener perceiving me, we may need to actively go out there and find it or do the equivalent of the mock conference in the training course where we recreate that situation, maybe with colleagues or with somebody else and say, okay, you play the pure customer, you listen to me do this. And then you tell me not so much, you know, oh, you forgot the 17% or, you know, you said Wednesday instead of Tuesday, but to say afterwards, how did it make you feel? How did it communicate to you? Did it persuade you of something? Did it, uh, was the process getting in the way? All those sorts of questions that I think can be uh, major uh, challenges and maybe working conditions are a challenge of practical things. I've been talking about remote, but I think if you cannot hear a speaker properly, that undermines your ability to, to do the job. So we need to insist on uh, decent working conditions for interpreters to be able to aspire to, to provide a, a good, uh, good service. And the, the last thing when I was talking about those Korean noodles, so that really specific thing, because people love, linguists love talking about, you know, untranslatable things and well, culturally specific things. And do you explain or do you omit or do you localize? And it's a lot of fun. And we all enjoy having those discussions among 
peers. But I do worry sometimes that this can worsen a challenge for some interpreters, which is acute self-consciousness about something which in the moment of simultaneous interpreting appears not to have an immediate equivalent. And the intellectual rigor of recognizing that this can happen is good, but as we were saying earlier, you know, if this paralyzes you, if this has collateral damage, then it's no longer good. And if we can put it in the broader perspective, like lots of people hate British and Irish speakers for jokes, right? They'll say, I don't, you know, lots of um, other interpreters around the world say to me, oh, no, you know, I've got a British speaker. They'll probably make some little or they'll make some, you know, ironic understatement thing that I'll miss and I won't do justice to it in my interpretation. And with every culture, there's something that people say, oh, no, you know, like Spaniards will talk too fast or Italians will quote something from the Bible or, you know, whatever. whatever <laughs> it and um, it, often that then becomes our number one priority, like I was saying earlier, in the moment rather than the speaker's intention. And it is often quite incidental to the speaker's intention. Well, it could go either way. So at either end of the spectrum, firstly, you know, I'm so British that I do it without thinking. So my normal way of communicating is to make ironic jokes, but that's not my purpose in life. My purpose is to give my speech just like anybody else. I just happen to give it that, that British way. So my number one priority is not the things that you find peculiarly British, my priority is my underlying intention, the same as with any other cultural specificity for anywhere else in the world. The speaker has a reason for communicating, and it's not to stand up and say, hey, look at me, I'm really typical of my culture, usually. Usually there's more of a profound kind of meaning to the conference and to the interaction. But the interpreter started focusing on that one thing because it's the thing that's problematic for them. So again, getting back to the underlying intention can help. That's one direction where it's kind of incidental because it's cultural and therefore just natural and spontaneous for the speaker. Other extreme, I really, really want to share something that I am aware is specific to my culture and that's why I'm sharing it with everybody else. And I'm talking about fish and chips, which is my thing from where I'm from. And you can't localize it and you can't gloss it. You just have to do your best to explain the essence of it from whenever you may have come across it in your cultural exposure to my language, because I'm really making a point of talking about this thing. Now, interpreters sometimes get scared for, by, by that too, as though they feel they have to domesticate and localize and sort of panic when there's something really, really culturally specific to the, to the source language. But again, it might be helpful to remember, you know, my example about the thing that I most enjoy about the Korean drama is incomprehensible cultural references to the significance of certain types of noodle soup that people are listening out for that you know that if I'm listening to an interpretation from Chinese the, the most exciting moment is when they say well we have this thing in China where people tend to think that this and this has this association with that which goes back to Confucius and whatever and I might find it hard to follow but I love it. And if the interpreter slightly comes out of character and says, sorry, the interpreter apologizes, this is just really, really Chinese, okay? <laughs> somebody who doesn't speak Chinese. I love that. I would never penalize that interpreter. It's the most exciting part of the whole speech. So because I've uh, been there as customer, that helps me relax a little bit as interpreter when I'm struggling to do justice to, let's say, when everybody has this feeling of, oh, I can't 
how how do I do that? It doesn't work in the other language. That awful, awful moment we all have. So hopefully we can put it in perspective that way. Mm -hmm. So we have uh, a lot of comments and questions. So I'll get to the first one. So Tony asks, um, hi, Matthew. Uh, what techniques do you use to improve your memory and recall abilities and how can other interpreters benefit from uh, these techniques? Oh, great question. Hi, Tony. I don't, if that's the Tony, I think it is. I haven't seen you since primary school. Uh, uh, <laughs> so hi. How's <laughs> life? Uh, yeah. We were in Datchet in 1979. Um, Maybe it's a completely different journey. <laughs> anyway, um, so maybe my memory and recall abilities are not good. Maybe that's <laughs> the test. How good is my memory and recall of my own primary school? I've got it completely wrong, wrong name. Um, I would, the, the moment you become self-conscious about memory and recall, you run into those problems that I was talking about at the very beginning. So I think uh, going back to the story of what's going on, if we think of an actor forgetting the lines, if you forget your lines, basically you, you're treating the lines as just words on a page. So the way not to do it, the way an actor would do it, is to inhabit the character in such a way that the reactions to other characters become inevitable because there's a story because that's the only way you could react because of who you are. So even if the audience is surprised when you suddenly... You, you know, you've looked very affectionate. You suddenly turn violent and grab the gun from the shelf and shoot the other person. The audience is shocked. But you, as a character, could not have behaved any differently because of who you are and why something triggered you, which is in your backstory. And all of this is in your head as an actor because it's real. You have to be authentic. Um, so as interpreter, to be authentic... Uh, you have to inhabit the story too. The speaker has a story. There's a reason why something has to follow. So if you start with the conclusion of a speech in consecutive, you can visualize how everything inevitably leads to that conclusion. Rather than starting with the introduction, uh, you start with the end of the journey and then you start on the journey and maybe you get a bit lost along the way, as on any journey. But if you have your destination in mind, it can't go as badly wrong as if all you have is a starting point and then you're sort of desperately looking around thinking, where next? Where next, right? That's the beginner consecutive reaction of, right, I've done that bit. Um, <laughs> right? we, if we have the destination in mind, it, it begins to acquire a certain inevitability and, and authenticity as a as a story and also tricks that actors have you might move to a different part of the stage you might have business uh, uh, as we call it so if you have a really long speech where it's just you speaking uh, you would divide it up and you would have perhaps a little gesture or a little moment so that it then becomes a different speech that there's this there's the speech when I'm looking at you like this and then there's that moment when I go like that and then there's a whole other speech and this is quite a different speech because I'm looking at you in quite a different way now my whole tone has changed my body language has changed I'm almost a different person to when I'm just friendly like this so that is a monologue but I wouldn't as an actor I wouldn't lose the thread because there's a journey there where there's a destination so as an interpreter 
similar. And also the perhaps relativizing the little moments, the little things that we might lose. If we prioritize primary information over secondary information, speaker's intention and destination over the landmarks along the way, then even if we have an incidental difficulty along the way, that won't make us panic because we've got the bigger landmark, which is still there, which is still solid. So having that hierarchy and having landmarks and, and business can give us something that we know we can cling on to. Surprise, surprise, it's the same, Tony. Ta-da! <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we have another question, which is uh, linked to what you were saying uh, to Tony, and uh, it's from Cecilia. Um, that says, my biggest challenge as an interpreter is when the client does not provide enough information before the hearing or event because it's too, quote-unquote, confidential. Here in Mexico, clients are still getting used to us requesting information beforehand uh, to get ready for the task. So I think that this uh, goes back to the background. To, uh, you don't have enough context or background to build the character that uh, would help you. Is this something that uh, is a problem for you and how can you uh, solve it? Right. Um, yes, obviously, it's a, this is a challenge and obviously we're always grateful for, for as many materials as we can uh, receive. But I would go back to the distinction I made earlier between the, the thinking in terms of the words and the information, in the case of the actor, the actual words in the script, compared to the, the motivation and the story and the journey. So if you don't have the actual information, you may be lacking some of the technical terminology. There may be workarounds that you need to do strategically to kind of second guess what the subject matter under discussion will be and so on. But in sort of deeper terms of how you will be somebody's voice, there may be other ways of uh, approaching it so that human interactions boil down to several types, uh, a bilateral meeting where there are two sides who have two aims, possibly conflicting aims or the same aim and different ideas about how to, how to pursue it, and multilateral encounters where there's a whole set of different approaches to, to achieving the same aim. And you may have a negotiation um, between parties where... Even if people give you the information, sorry, my hand went the wrong side of the camera. There, <laughs> but I wasn't giving you the information. I was doing a completely invisible gesture over here where the camera can't see. Um, so where, which sort of makes the point that I've given you the information, but I'm doing it over there where you can't see me. And the, the uh, information may not actually correspond to the underlying motivation and intention of the dynamics of the, the human encounter. And this you see with briefings that I've had some experience with meeting organizers uh, saying, we'll give the interpreters a briefing for half an hour before the meeting. So the interpreters are kind of, oh no, got to be there half an hour earlier. But at the same time thinking, oh great, we're going to be able to ask questions and really you know, add to our preparation and feel more confident. And it doesn't always work as well as one might expect, or at least it is a fine art, which is a work in progress, let's say, wonderful idea and can still be improved because what people think is useful information to provide to interpreters is not necessarily useful if they don't if they're not interpreters themselves but 
before the listener, the interpreters listening get too arrogant about, oh, yeah, you know, we, we know best because we're the interpreters, what interpreters think they need in advance is not always what they need either. <laughs> so they will ask questions like, could you, you know, could you give me the list of uh, main products or could you give me the terminology or how do you say that in the other language? And then the meeting starts and there's some hidden agenda and there's some reason why people are not quite saying what they mean, but are pursuing another objective. And the interpreters are missing the nuances. And so how do you say, please give me a briefing on the nuances? Or please give me a briefing on what is not going to be said, because that's more important to me than what is going to be said. Diplomats will usually understand that kind of language, because that's the way they work as well. And they often are linguists. Um, but that communication about what, what do we need is not always clear. So to look on the bright side, uh, not getting piles of documents uh, may not be significantly worse than getting piles of documents because the documents are not always exactly what interpreters need. And if we take a smart approach to preparation, what they call at university reading around the subject to get at people's uh, motivations and look at the role play. If we do a practice role play of, you know, this is the kind of encounter that's going to happen. Whatever information we have got, we then kind of improvise around. So that here again, a bit like acting, we do some improv, then we may uh, achieve some preparation. So yeah, I have no magic answer to replace <laughs> vital information and terminology, but there are certainly strategies that we could try to pursue. Mm -hmm. So we have another question from Dan. Um, as a freelance interpreter starting out in his career, listening to Matt is really interesting. And um, he asks, uh, what was your first EU interpreting assignment like? And how did you prepare for it uh, and deal with it uh, with any nerves on the day? Nice question. I would ask that. <laughs> right. Well, uh, yeah, I'm going to give a really annoying answer now, which is that things <laughs> were different in, in, in my so sort of half dinosaur answer. But I'll, I'll make it relevant because I think the, the fact that it was facilitated for me is something that we can try to artificially produce. So all kinds of situations where when something lands in your lap, you can then think, how can I make this happen? artificially another time so don't just be jealous of me think how can I make this happen for me by engineering a situation by being a bit more proactive I was passive and I was lucky um, I was trained in-house by the same people who would become my colleagues and we did dummy booth so we were going to the meetings and interpreting them but without switching on the microphone for real and without having real delegates listen to us but having our peers, the professionals, listen to us and give us feedback. And then one day we went live. So it was very much like the driving instructor sort of being able to override the brakes for a bit when we were dangerous drivers and then one day saying, okay, you're on your own now and <laughs> still having a crash. So um, also to put it in perspective, I went to see the course director two months before I finished my training in a panic because when I went into these real meetings, I realized I didn't have a clue what was going on and I couldn't interpret them properly. And I also realized that because of my performing background, you'd asked about that. So, you know, sometimes I could do a consecutive with a bit of a flourish and show off my use of mother tongue and get good feedback. So I thought this is a very dangerous combination. 
there's a significant risk that I will actually pass my final exam because of these skills that I've got and the speeches in the exam will be given by trainers so everything's in a controlled classroom environment and I'm terrified that I will actually pass that and then the next day be put in a real meeting one of these meetings out there with real people where I haven't got a clue what's going on and who wants what and uh and so on and uh so I was very much aware of that and the course director said, ah, that's a very good sign that you have potential because you're aware of the scale of the challenge. And if you'd been complacent and just sort of heading for disaster without, mm-hmm. uh, without panicking, so that, that, that arrogant side that I was talking about earlier, then that would mean maybe you don't have the potential to do the job. But if, you, if you're aware of the challenge, none of us is perfect. We all do our best. And if, if you're aware of the scale of the challenge, you are well placed to intelligently try to to meet it. So that I would pass that message on to anyone who's who's feeling daunted about the, the taking the, the first step. And as I was saying before, with doing a role play or doing a simulation, I would get as close as possible to whatever professional environment you're going to be in as a non-interpreter. So if you don't have the chance to do dummy boot itself and actually have a test run of exactly the same thing that you will do as an interpreter. You can still get close in other ways and go to meetings or go to uh, civil society um, events and anything which is open to the public and to press conferences and and kind of interact. Um, put, put yourself in those shoes, put that hat on and uh, develop that empathy and you will start to develop an idea for who wants what and, and why, which will be, which will be crucial. We have another very, very quick question from Salim. Hi, Matthew. How do you deal with fast speaker giving statistics? That this is the nightmare, I think. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, in a way, I mean, this this kind of question demonstrates the belief that there's a sort of spectrum where you, there are more or less successful ways of doing it, and that somehow. You know, I, I'm here as an experienced interpreter sharing my secrets and that somehow I'll be able to say, ah, well, with a fast speaker doing statistics, you should do what I do. And then they'll all be correct. <laughs> you know, the, the, the guilty secret is that nobody can, you know, there are things that are just really hard to interpret and nobody can do it. Uh, so first distinction is between fast and dense. So uh, I find from a lot of my languages, romance languages, um, that speakers will often be very, very fast, have an incredibly fast delivery syllabically, um, uh, but quite often either repeat themselves or paraphrase things or be circumlocutory in approaching an idea. And that is our secret weapon working into English, (laughs) then, which is that you only need to say it once and clearly. So you don't need to feel bombarded um, with, with information if you have a speaker who does that. So a speaker being fast, I would argue, is not a problem. And that the same can be true with, with English and other languages. It doesn't have to be a Romance language. There will be fast speakers whom you can condense and you can extract an idea and say it once clearly without accelerating in the booth at all and without going... We can do that using interpreting skills with fast speakers by learning to reformulate salami technique, chop it up, 
<laughs> get to the point, start with who does what, and just say it in a short, clear, punchy way, whatever the speaker does, we can survive. So interpreting skills will get us some of the way. If the speaker is dense and thinking incredibly fast, then we're in trouble because then we don't have so much uh, redundancy to work with um, and we can't cut it down so much. But the source language audience might also be struggling to follow. So if they're jumping from one idea to another, we can just try to cling on to the thread and the destination and uh, keep going with the journey, as I was describing earlier with the, the Argentinian example. Statistics, obviously, that adds another problem to it. So can the source language audience follow all the statistics? Um, does anybody care about statistics? That's another question. So maybe the source, maybe the source language audience can't follow. They're gabbling. They're reading them out. So this is no longer a natural speaker. This is somebody who is engaging mouth before brain and just reproducing information which is on a piece of paper, in which case my, the temptation for me would be to say the speaker clearly has all these figures. If you want them, maybe you could ask them for them. Now, obviously, it depends on what context you're interpreting in. But I think that's an important reaction for an interpreter to have. Pragmatically, if all the information is on a slide or on a file somewhere, or on a piece of paper, then why verbalize and then mess it up and get the interpretation slightly wrong? Just, just give them the piece of paper with the figures. Um, and there's AI uh, techniques now. Uh, I've been working with SmartERP um, on an educational version of um, an RSI console which will use AI. And one of the things they do is work with figures and recognition of numbers and so on. So I think technology may come leap, leaping to the rescue in some respects, in some ways, with all of the provisos that we have to have, disclaimers about uh, being careful with it. Um, what other get-out clauses? Order of magnitude. I say get-out clauses. It's kind of, we, we're going to have trouble, so let's make the best of it. Order of magnitude, is something greater or smaller? Is it going up or is it going down? If we get movement and order of magnitude, we've got a story. So if the statistics are telling a story, we can tell the story without having every single number and without having the smaller numbers. It's gone from thousands to millions. That's still a story. So if we do all of that and we still feel we're missing a lot, then... I don't think many customers would really resent it if the interpreter steps out of the, the role for a moment and says, the interpreter apologizes. There are just so many numbers, maybe you could ask them to repeat it. I mean, even if, they don't, if they're not reading it out, if they are genuinely speaking naturally, you just say, sorry, the interpreter missed some of the numbers there. Um, maybe you could ask them to repeat them. And probably... Your, your listener will be understanding. And probably if they do ask for them to repeat them, the speaker will say, I'm, I apologize to everybody and to the interpreters. I got a bit carried away there. Here are the numbers again slowly. And it's just not, not a big deal, really. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll just share a couple of more questions and then I'll free you, Matthew. I don't want to, <laughs> you know, cage you in, the, in here. So... <laughs> We have another question from Emily uh, that says, I would love some tips on how to use an adequately long decalage for a natural sounding output while minimizing the risk of getting forgetting pieces of message due to long er, lag. 
Right. Yes, this is a very, uh, um, so um, when people say, ah, that's a very good question, which it is. Very, very good question, <laughs> Emily. Good uh, and technical. <laughs> but of course, when, when people say that, it usually means I haven't got a good answer. Um, so you flatter, the, you flatter the questioner in the hope that they won't notice that you haven't really answered. Um, so I do have an answer, but I'm not sure I can do it justice here in this interview, which is, um, that developing two gears is incredibly helpful. So once you've developed décalage, which I think is a vital thing to develop, so an interpreter who never develops it will never be able to do a sophisticated interpretation. But that doesn't mean that it's the cure-all and that everything will always go smoothly. So we may well have this situation where because of our use of décalage, we're then having other problems. So first problem can be because uh, we need the other gear. So uh, names, numbers, things which can be more directly transferred. Generally, I would say we need to be very close in for in order not to lose them because they're not. it's not a story. We can't visualize it if it's 47 or it's, uh, you know, steel exports or, or whatever. We probably need to say it immediately. Get the enumeration, the numbers, the names out the way. Uh, so how can we be doing that very quickly and doing ideas much more slowly, waiting for complete ideas before we formulate them in the target language? And the answer is to develop two gears. So I, because I work mainly into English and I train mainly into English, I have tricks from the English language here. They may be different for other booths. But in English, you can usually start with the crucial information and then see what you do grammatically afterwards. So steel, 42%. 2014, 38%. 2015. And so with a little bit of intonation, you can have bits of fact with not much grammar around them. And if I start saying, and yet we find that the situation for the exports, I've lost all the figures by then, right? If I start with 42%, at least I've got the 42%. So prioritize do the information bits first and then join them up afterwards. So I would say we're doing décalage for some things. This is the two gears and uh, parroting, let's say, straight back, giving it straight back for others. So uh, if we say, I don't know, uh, tetanus, polio, uh, HIV, these are some of the diseases which are causing problems it's okay. I think it's okay for the listener. And it's probably preferable to missing one of the diseases because we start saying, I'd like to give you some examples of some of the... <laughs> no, no we, need the, we need the list. And um, I'll share the last question, which is from Ibrahim. Um, that says, quite often I find myself struggling with high-pitched slash up-speaking voices to an extent that I sometimes get gripped for a second or two before bouncing back nervously so is it only me or is it something common any tips this is interesting yeah um i think so all aspects of pitch and intonation have a have a huge impact so they have an impact on how our listeners perceive us and the same on how we perceive the person that we're interpreting and sometimes uh so this might be in the category where i was talking about communicating the process so just as we might communicate our own puzzlement or hesitation or uncertainty about what's coming next, in simultaneous, we're having difficulties anticipating 
our voice shows that. And even though the message we deliver is okay, the intonation has ruined it because we've created doubt in the, in the mind of our listener. Uh, similarly, anyone doing public speaking, so our source speaker potentially, could be nervous or emotional, uh, reacting, responding in some way to the, to the topic, to the message, or to the setting in a way that communicates that self-consciousness or the process through the voice uh, as well as the content itself. And that makes life more difficult for us because we have to extract the meaning anyway and sort of interpret it, the, uh, uh, interpret what they would have said if they'd said it naturally and meaningfully rather than in the peculiar way that they have said it. So that's a distraction. So basically I'd probably... If I've understood the, correct, the question correctly, I'm kind of um, sort of speculating a little bit, but I would put it in the category of distraction, where there's some extraneous feature that is making us harder, making it harder for us to, to focus. Um, getting crippled for a second or two before bouncing back sounds like a distraction, and this can happen for many, many reasons, all sorts of uh, features, and it can be. Um, absolutely fatal because those few seconds can be seconds in which there's been some crucial information communicated. So I would say distraction is one of the main enemies of the interpreter. And if we can um, cling on to a story and visualize the story, it may be that it's an extraneous feature. And so the distraction is not fatal because we just have to wait. Um, but we need that cold, uh, let's say, distance, perhaps, from the speaker. Just to, one thing to add, the more I think about it, I, I am guessing that Ibrahim is talking about working from an A language. Uh, but anyway, maybe maybe the case, maybe not. But if it is an, working from an A language, we have an additional problem, which is that sometimes we identify so much with the source speaker that we're extra sensitive to all features of how they're speaking because we're a fellow native speaker of that language. And that can also paralyze us a little bit when transferring to another language. So whether it is or not, I think a bit of cold distance, sans froid, as the, the, the French would say, can be vital in those moments not to get distracted. Um, we use whatever emotion they're communicating through their voice to understand the message better, but we take a step back from it in order uh, not to be thrown by it and to keep our eye on that on that journey towards our destination. Oh yeah, now I'm now I'm putting my head in the right position. <laughs> this is what I should have done yeah, earlier. It's on oh, no, no. Now. This is what I should have done earlier. There we go. On the journey to the destination. <laughs> where am I going? I don't know where I'm going. No, I'm <laughs> so unfortunately our journey for today has come to an end. So I would like to thank you so, so much, Matthew, for your time, your attention, your examples, your expertise, everything. And I hope to, to see you again very, very soon. And I hope this has been great a great pleasure. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I was hoping <laughs> you said that. <laughs> and, and if the audience maybe has some more question, uh, I hope that they can write to you on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, if I'm sure. correct. Okay, great. So have a nice evening, everyone, and see you again very, very soon. Bye.